The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. and I think underreported aspect of agency management, uh, bringing together three entrepreneurs, uh, women entrepreneurs from different continents to discuss the challenges they'd faced and um, the difference that gender made in their leadership style. Um, This time out, we're going to be looking Uh, not at entrepreneurs per se, but as second and in one case, at least third generation CEOs of independent firms. Um, This topic interested me because I think it's um, long been the norm for agencies when their founders reach a certain age or a certain stage of their career Um, to look around for potential buyers and um, to sort of, there's almost a a natural hierarchy out there, I think, which starts with the the big PR holding companies like WPP and Omnicom and Interpublic and then works its way down. Um, Nowadays, obviously, you have private equity in there, you you have um, some smaller sort of roll-up oriented um, independent groups, um, and you have a bunch of PR agencies that are going around buying other PR agencies, and so there's no shortage of options for agency founders um, when they uh, choose to move on. And yet, um, the agencies represented here today have all chosen a slightly different route, remaining independent, uh, passing on ownership from one generation uh, to another. Um, And so we're going to explore why agencies make that choice. We're going to explore what the implications are, um, both for agency founders and for the next generation of management. We're going to discuss um, what the, the opportunities are that are created by this. And I think we should have a lively discussion. Let's start, if we can, uh, by just going around the screen and Um, introducing ourselves and maybe just giving a brief explanation of how you got to be um, the manager, um, part owner of, uh, of, or in some cases, full owner of the the operation that you're leading today, Debbie. Yep. Hi, so I'm Debbie Penton. I'm the managing director of WorldPower. We're a technology PR agency in London. Um, I am a 64 5% 5% shareholder of Wildfire now. That came about because um, it's we've been through many lives, but originally the original founder of Wildfire actually gave me 49% of the business when it was tiny, and uh, I helped build it to an agency that then merged with another one, which then sh- made my shareholding uh, down to 20%. 
Um, and then three years ago, we did an MBO with uh, another of the, the founders of the business we merged with. Sorry, sounds complicated. Um, and uh, which leaves me where I am today. Tobias. Yes, hello. I'm Tobias Bieler from Klenketursch in Germany. I'm uh, one of the owners and the chief financial officer of our firm. And uh, so when I entered our firm almost 18 years ago, um, I, I started as a junior consultant uh, in our operations back then only in Frankfurt. And I made the full journey from, you know, starting as a junior consultant to today being the, the largest shareholder of our company. Um, and today we have um, 70 people in Germany in our four offices in Frankfurt, Munich, Hamburg and Berlin. And um, yeah, so, certainly it will be very interesting probably to tell uh, to talk today about the different uh, uh, opportunities along the journey so far. And uh, also, as, as you introduced, Paul, uh, the, the uh, different uh, advantages and also the reasons why we personally or also the colleagues, um, we, we, we continued on our journey within our company now and, and didn't take the uh, different opportunities on sideways, right? Uh, following other chances. And Luke. Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks, Paul. Good to be with you once again. Uh, Luke Lambert, uh, CEO of GNS Business Communications. And uh, I'm the, the third generation uh, CEO of GNS that Paul mentioned. Um, and, you know, that's because we've been in existence at GNS since we were formed in 1971. So it's 52 years of this. And um, just a little history, our firm was founded by two gentlemen who became, uh, who left Burson Marsteller uh, on GNS in 1971. And uh, the reason the so early is because one of the owners came to the other to, uh, and Dick Gibbs was forced to say, uh, to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna retire, and it, he was fairly young, I think, in his early 40s, to go do something different. And uh, Mr. Gibbs decided, um, uh, you know, I've got this incredible talent here at the agency, and now it's all on me. And he turned to his advisor, the person who had incorporated our agency, happened to be our attorney, and they uh, drafted a shareholder agreement at that moment. Uh, that was over 25 years ago. Uh, they, they started a succession plan and they extended ownership on to a group of uh, rising executives at the time. And I think it, in many cases kind of made us a unicorn for independent agencies in the industry. But now today, fast forward, we have, we have nine, nine owners, uh, which, which I'm one of. That, that's Really interesting, Luke, and, and sort of a good starting point for the first thing that I wanted to talk about, which is why entrepreneurs choose what I think is still the path less traveled, right? Um, the perception when I talk to, to agency founders is still that if you want to maximize, you know, the sort of cash benefit of, of getting out of an agency, you find a buyer. Um, and usually that means you find a third party buyer um, with deep pockets and a really specific need for the kind of agency that you've built. Um, and then you uh, and, and then you try to negotiate the highest price possible. And I think there's always this perception that if you if you pass it on to the next generation, um, maybe 
Uh, you get to keep a little bit more of the legacy and the culture that you built up, but you probably end up leaving money on the table. Um, so I guess my first question is, why do entrepreneurs choose um, this continued independence um, over the potential of a giant cash payout? And Luke, you you were talking about how the decision came about at GNS. So why don't you why don't you tell me, as far as you know it, sort of what the thought process was there? Yeah, I, I think it. You know, that's where we were really fortunate because of that the 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 events that transpired uh, when when you know Dick Gibbs, who who started the firm, co-founded, um, his partner decided to retire. You know, he saw that talent. And he had, you know, a, a wonderful advisor to put this plan in place and drafted it literally a shareholders agreement, which started with what is the value? And that was the, the first thing they started with was to determine a value. And we still use that exact same process. I think we're on the 20th iteration of an annual value. Now it's an annual valuation. And if you can show value and show that the firm has value, and then you have a group of uh, hungry rising executives um, it's it's much easier for it to become tangible and, and tangible and have people get excited. So um, that's interesting, Luke, and gives me a good starting point for the conversation. So I'm interested in why agency founders take what I think is still considered by many to be the road less traveled. Um, and why they choose, if that is indeed the 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 reality, um, to leave money on the table in order to to maybe maintain more of a culture or or leave more of a legacy than they would by selling to a third party. Um, as far as you know it, what was the what was the thinking at GNS back in the day? Yeah. So thanks, Paul. So like I like I said earlier. Um, it, it was a series of events uh, with our firm, our, our co-founder, Dick Gibbs, um, who I mentioned his uh, over 25 years ago, his partner, you know, um, came to him and, and they were both, I think, don't quote me on it, I think about 40 in their early 40s and his partner decided to retire and go do something different. Um, and, and Dick looked around and saw this, you know, talent that he had across the agency and and wanted to engage that talent. He also, I think this is this is a critical point, had a had a wonderful advisor at his side, our attorney who helped start our firm, incorporate our firm, and quickly they decided let's put a let's put a shareholders agreement together um, and and let's start quote unquote selling this agency for the future. Um, to to a select number of folks in that in that next gen, and that's exactly what they did. And and part of that is is an annual what what is now an annual valuation. That's a best practice that started over 25 years ago, and we're still doing it on an annual basis today. And I think when you do that and you put a dollar value to your agency, and watch that what happens, the decisions you make when the value goes up and, and when it goes down, it really gives people. Um, at that next level, kind of an ownership mentality. And I think that's critical. But, you know, I don't think, you know, going back to, 
I don't think there's one answer today. You, you know, you mentioned the people you talk to and how dynamic this market is, the, the M&A market in our industry. I don't think it's it's always the same. And you know, we we did an acquisition in 2018 of Cooper Katz and uh, Ralph Katz's firm at the time. And Ralph, you know, one of the finest uh, gentlemen, in my opinion, to serve our profession. Um, it was time for for a variety of reasons that I won't get into. Uh, you know. That for him to sell his agency um, to GNS and not to his employees, although that could have been an option. But we we both made the best of it. And 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 what made that unique is that we made our first ever acquisition and we brought in who was their current CEO at, at the time as an equity partner in GNS. So I think every situation is is really different. And and sometimes even the holding company option. I'm at, even the holding company option, private equity, we're seeing that more and more. That can be a good option too for firms. So I think it depends on the situation. Tobias, sort of the same question for you, but maybe can, can since you're a CFO and have therefore I assume a greater understanding of these things than we mere mortals, um, talk a little bit about the mechanics of selling to existing employees and how that worked in, in your case. Um, whether it was out of overtime, out of profits, or whether you had to put put large amounts of your own cash in to make the acquisition, how did that work uh, in your case? Well, first of first of all, I think it's also important to understand a little bit about the structure, how our partnership was set up. It's a little bit uh, similar to what Luke just explained. So our founders, uh, which are also in our company name, uh, Stefan Horsch and Volker Klenk, they have been uh, in the leadership of integrated networks uh, leading the German operations. So when they set up their own company uh, 20 years ago, uh, from the very first day, they envisioned already the handover to the next generation. It's in our DNA, it's written down, it's, it has massive effect on our values and everything. It's similar to what Luke just said. Um, following to the plan now, uh, to, to your question, Paul, um, what, what we did it was, was rather a step-by-step -step approach. So uh, handing over of responsibility, getting along with handing over of you know, shares. Um, the shares in our case, um, people stepping up, employees stepping up to become co-owners of the company, uh, they had to buy the, the, the stock, they had to pay cash, so it's an equity partnership. Um, obviously, there were arrangements between the, you know, the founding partners and younger partners in terms of you know, financing uh, this, these packages, um, but uh, it's, it's, still, it's still that. So uh, also today, it's not linked to, you know, um, uh, money that that comes from the operation um, linked to uh, profits. Uh, if, if you if you want to uh, to improve your uh, to to increase your your shares, uh, but it but you, you you pay cash right. That's that's our model. Uh, but importantly, stepping up a bit, always a bit, and that that over the time, I think in our case was also important because it gave um, gave you the opportunity because it's a shift right. The one, as I said, I started as an employee, uh, as a junior consultant in the company, and and you know stepping up, and it's important that you also have the time to develop uh, the skills, um, not only becoming an even better advisor, or, you know, consultant, 
but uh, uh, getting the capabilities also in terms of you know managing a company entrepreneurial skills so uh, i think um, acquiring more and more shares over time and shift our, of responsibility that worked very well in our case over the past 20 years great debbie feel feel free to add your own experience to to the answers that we've already gotten from tobias and, and luke there but i'm also interested from your perspective on whether this route has different implications for both employees and for clients, whether it's a more comfortable transition for employees and clients, whether it um, whether it offers them a continuity continuity that isn't necessarily there with a traditional acquisition. Um, what's your experience been? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I think um, I've been part of companies who've been taken over by bigger companies. I've had discussions about sales. We've looked at all of the options. Different things have happened over the years. I think that, you know, one of the things is is control. Um, and so, and, and with that also allows you to be more open and take people on a journey, typically with an acquisition or a, um, or a sale or, you know, everyone's very hush-hush about it. It can kind of, everyone's going into lock rooms and sort of working out the details and it's very distracting for everyone on all involved. The employees aren't really sure what's going on. You can't really tell them in case it doesn't happen. It's all so uncertain. I think the benefit of, um, of kind of selling back to your business or into the employees is that you can communicate the benefits from the outset. You can bring people along. You have control over the timing, the valuation, the future. Uh, you can collaborate with people. Um, and it, that does absolutely give them the kind of certainty and stability. And you can think about everybody's ambitions in that process. You can talk to the team and say, right, you know, what do we want to get from this? Even the ones who aren't particularly, you know, there are people maybe who haven't got ownership, then in a sales situation wouldn't necessarily be involved in those discussions, but you can kind of make a plan for them in the future um, and have that kind of aspect of legacy um, that people can come on board with. So I think it's probably, you know, can be a lot more, a lot more stable. And, and if you like to be able to plan and control things, then, uh, you know, that route is you know, one one to consider strongly, I think. I, I'm sort of um, intrigued by um, whether you inheriting a firm like this would consider yourself to be, or yourselves, to be entrepreneurs. And I come to this, I come to this question because uh, when we, when we started our global event in Miami 10 or 15 years ago, um, we started it with something called the Independent PR Firms Forum because I wanted all independent PR firms to, to feel welcome and I wanted it to, to be inclusive. And I actually got pushback from, I mean, the name was unwieldy, but I got pushback from, um, from, from people in second generation firms um, saying, you know, you can call it the Entrepreneurs Forum. We feel just as entrepreneurial as the people who founded our firm. And I'm sort of interested whether you you as individuals feel like you have that kind of entrepreneurial DNA and you are fulfilling your entrepreneurial ambitions as opposed to being, I don't know, second generation caretaker managers or whatever the that that sounds like a, a slightly dismissive term, but whatever the term is for 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 the next generation. I mean, do do you consider yourself to be an entrepreneur, Luke? 
And, and would you have, have contemplated going out on your own if this opportunity hadn't come along? Yeah, you know, first off, the answer to your first question is absolutely. I think if you're an owner in an independent firm, you have to take an entrepreneurial mindset. One of the first things that I did, and it's interesting, we just had a principal meeting um, early this morning where we talked about our values. And one of the values that I put in, I built on a foundation of really, really strong values. So I was very fortunate. But one of the first values that I put in place uh, was uh, confident risk-taking. And, and I think it's so important um, to be a risk-taker, a confident risk-taker. And that was my first order of business, really, was to instill that value. It's so important um, because if you're, if you're not taking risks, then you're not being entrepreneurial. Um, you, you run the risk of becoming stale uh, and, and you're afraid as an agency to take on, uh, on on new ideas, bring new ideas to the table, and you're afraid to fail. And if, think about what happened in the past 10 years in our profession. If we hadn't done that, well, we wouldn't have a, a creative team that's 25 people strong and a digital team just as large. And we last year, we launched a media team. So if you don't have um, that entrepreneurial spirit or, or, or don't feel that you're an entrepreneur, as a business owner, then I think I think you're missing something. Well, what, what about you, Debbie? Because I, I've got to admit, the first time we met, I just assumed you were a founder. Um, you sort of you present as a founder. If, if that's not, if that, I, I mean that as a compliment, I hope you understand it that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree. I, you know, certainly feel that you know the entrepreneurial spirit, but I won't. I don't call myself an entrepreneur. Um, someone wrote a blog for me this week and it started as an entrepreneur. I was like, well, you can take that out. One, I just, you know, I just don't think it, I don't know. It's, I, I, it, I, I don't believe in sort of starting things with those labels. It feels like, you know, well, what does that even mean? Um, but, you know, everything that Luke said, I agreed with. I was like, yeah, sure. I've got all of those things, but I didn't start the agency. Um I wouldn't have started an agency. I think sometimes having that sort of, there's a founder's mentality, right? That comes with, I started this, I bootstrapped, I, you know, sold my house, I put it on credit cards. And with that often can lead those people to be a bit more, you know, to want to maximize the value financially that they get out of the business at the other end. Um, and I've seen a lot of that where you've got these founders who are quite greedy and don't necessarily share that with their people who are running the business and they lose really good people because they haven't got a broader mindset on that. And perhaps as second generation leaders, we've been in a fortunate position where we've grown through the ranks or someone has shared their business with us. Uh, we've obviously will have sweated a lot to get there. Nothing happens without a lot of hard work. But I think with that mentality, you know, I certainly feel that I don't I don't want to maximize value out of the business and, and kill everyone in the process. And then I swan off into the sunset and leave them with some random owner who might change the business beyond their recognition. It feels like you want to reward the people around you a whole lot more because, you know, you feel fortunate to be in the position that you're in. And the, the other thing that happens, and it's part of that, I guess is that nearly every second generation firm that I know has a broader base of employee owners than 
the firm started with. So if the firm was started by one or two people, which is the norm, um, that that base of ownership gets better. That that that's that's the case um, with with you, right, Tobias? And that's the case. So we are now eight owners, and it started off with two. So yes, uh, that's that's the case with us. And I also so I agree absolutely. I would I would say the same thing like Luke and Debbie described. So I absolutely feel this entrepreneurial spirit strongly. Um, but I was not a founder. And I certainly was not feeling like an entrepreneur when I started my job as a junior consultant at the company where today I have the largest share. Um, but, um, you know, that's what I, I think at, on the journey from becoming an employee to, um, to an owner of a business, an independent um, a company, I think it is important to get as much entrepreneurial inspiration and acquire knowledge as much as you can and it's sometimes difficult uh, in the industry i mean certainly you know uh, within the pri worldwide network this is a great opportunity for us because we are all entrepreneurs i call myself an entrepreneur debbie but i think we, <laughs> we have the same but by i agree also to what, what you just said um but we are all um, business owners and we can have a very open discussion on important topics, uh, have exchange and knowledge uh, and, and experience, share, uh, experience sharing. And that is important. But the other thing is sometimes I believe it's helpful to get out of the industry even. So, um, for example, me and I know also other um, other partners within the PI network, for example, are, are involved in you know entrepreneurial networks, organizations outside our industry because it's so important to get, you know, get more knowledge and, and and build new networks on the entrepreneurial level not in the not within the industry because that's i think another another level yeah so that that leads me into another question which is sort of how well prepared you felt when you took over as a business owner um you know i it's long been a point of interest for me that as an industry whether we're talking about mid-sized firms or the you know the big global behemoths, we tend to take people who are great PR practitioners and promote them up the ladder until they become sort of they're in charge of a PL. And we assume that just because they were great PR people, they were also going to be great PL managers. And we know, I think, from experience, that's not the case. So how well prepared did you, I'm going to start with you, Luke, how well prepared did you feel for that transition from PR guy to CEO or from, yeah, in your case, CEO, um, from, 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 you know, counselor to owner? And yeah. were you helped to prepare for that? Or was it just sort of basically, here's the here's the deep end. Let's see how you do. Yeah, no, in my case, I was helped tremendously. And by the way, joined the agency, had a little bit of agency experience, had more corporate experience and then consulting experience, um, an advisory and CPA firm. So I, I had a, a little bit of different background and ironically joined GNS in 1996 as a as a as in a business development capacity the first one of uh, the first one joining in that capacity um, and and had some success early on and and things snowballed from there but I, I think I think the preparation for becoming an owner 
couple things I remember in particular that I think were really helpful as I, you know, advanced at GNS were, and it wasn't just me, there were several of us who were looked at, I think, as high potential performers. Um, we were invited as, I like to use, you know, next gen leaders um, to join um, ownership meetings, uh, even their annual meetings. So, you know, we certainly didn't attend every portion of it, but we had a seat at the table to really partake in really important discussions about growth, about the direction of the agency. And our, we really felt their voice was valued. That is such um, important on the job training. I can't stress it enough, something we're working on a lot this year ourselves. Um, but, and I mentioned in the, the advisor that started the agency, I, I just have this fond memory of, of the role he played because he attended all of our meetings. Um, and uh, the, the conversations I had with him prior to becoming an owner to talk about the history of the firm's ownership, the nuts and bolts, we're an S Corp by the way. So the nuts and bolts of how an S Corp is set up, what it means, what investing looks like, uh, looks like, but also like what are the risks and what are the rewards? And so I, yeah, Paul, sorry, long answer to say, yeah, I felt very prepared. Uh, what about you, Debbie? <laughs> um, I guess I'd, I'd run Wildfire as a smaller business and have been the managing director and grown it from a couple of people to, you know, maybe it was 12 people, I think, when we merged. When we merged, we suddenly had six shareholders, which I was one, and I wasn't MD anymore. Um, so I would say I was uh, chomping at the bit for years to get a hold of the business, uh, itching for the founder to kind of um, move on and uh, let me run things. Um, and so it was. I you felt know, the way I felt that way at every single company I worked for, from age seventeen. So <laughs> I get that a hundred percent. And so I obviously wasn't like 100% ready to do everything. But, you know, I guess the benefit was that we're talking, you know, Wildfire's 30 people. We were talking about a smaller business and not run running a kind of multi-territory sort of organization. I can, you know, I see everyone want to come into the office. So I think um, so it wasn't, you know, quite as big a challenge and a massive board and all of those sorts of things. But, um, yeah, I've, uh, you know, and, and, and the rest you learn as you go. So it's, uh, um, yeah, that was my approach. What about you, Tobias? Was there anything that you wish you'd known before you got the the ownership position? Uh, was there anything that took you by surprise about being an owner? Not really. So first of all, not really, because I think um, there's a lot of experience. You just have to make yourself right you can't nobody can tell you you have to do it by all um i th i truly believe this step-by-step -step approach i was followed that that helped me a lot so i felt well prepared from our founding partners in that term that the responsibility switch was step by step still i would totally agree some of the steps felt like jumping into ice cold water still right so uh, there were huge steps also um there was a very, uh, I had a very um, big motivation and passion for my the move when when I was a director. Um, I was trusted to open up our first office out of Frankfurt, right? So I opened our Munich office before we were operating ten years in Frankfurt, and it was our a second office in Germany. 
and actually that uh, trust from the from the founders but also the responsibility and also the skills i was able to acquire you know by by opening managing growing an office within our organization that in consequence was the first step to you know to my position i have today because uh, leading now the finance uh, finance for, for all organization all offices um, that that was just possible because I made that way. And actually, also back, getting back to a question right from the beginning, why did I choose to stay within our company? There are times where probably it feels like, you know, if I need I need something new, I need change, I need some more inspiration, also probably some you know something I can do on my own. That was the that was the moment, right? I was trusted to open up our operation in Munich, and and that was the moment where I was sure, you know, for the next years i have a really challenging great opportunity to grow personally as an entrepreneur get into new responsibilities so yes that's uh, I, I felt prepared on the one hand yes step by step and getting more learning more from the founders obviously learned a lot on the other hand you have to make a lot of the experiences on your own that's that's my my, my experience yeah. such a great point and by the way as prepared as I felt, Tobias and Debbie, you just made this point. I couldn't agree more uh, about you know making the investment and what it means, and and being guided through the process. I mean, beyond the job training uh, is incredible. Um, you forget a lot of what you learn going through that. It's not until you experience it, um, the business challenges. There are good years and there there are years that you're not as fond of. Um, you have to go through those business cycles and through those. You learn uh, just as much through the bad years as the good years. So there's a lot of on-the-job um, experience and training as well. But it's a very, yeah. I mean, it's a very multi-dimensional role, right? As owner, you're um, you're responsible for the numbers, but you're also responsible for the people and you know their their destiny and well-being. That the, there have been dimensions added to the job in recent years that maybe we didn't have to think about ten years ago. The mental health of our, our employees and you know how they're balancing work and life. I mean, uh, it 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 seems to me that that all CEOs are likely to be good at one or two of the things that they're expected to do and mediocre at best at three or four of them. But maybe that's just me and I'm projecting it onto everybody else. How rude, Paul. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and interestingly, uh, also adding to, to what just what also Luke just said before, uh, I think when I said stepping up and, you know, getting more and more involved also in the company, adding up shares, I think there's still the moment when there is this there is this moment of shift from a generation to another when you have the majority, and even though you're working for a long time together and you have this you know um, step by step approach, getting more responsibility, there is this point and it feels different. It changes massively the way how you operate because then you have both hands on the steering wheel, right? It's like you said, all, all is in your hand. Uh, it's your responsibility. Uh, there's uh, the, 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 there's the partnership, but the majority uh, is is also uh, putting a lot of responsibility on on your side. So I think that's that's also important. And we don't we're not doing it all, are we? We we've all got a team around us who you know who someone who's better at the numbers or better at that other thing. Um, so you know, fortunately, we don't have to do it all. 
yeah. team effort. I know. I, I mean, from my experience, I always tell people the best advice I ever got was hire people smarter than you are, um, which I found alarmingly easy. Um, <laughs> but now there are people doing every job in my company who are way better at it than I was when I was trying to do them all. I think everybody who starts a company ends up in that place. Um, what about what happens next? I'm, I don't I don't want to ask any of you to reveal secret strategies for the future, um, but do you feel any kind of obligation to hand over to a next generation um, of, of sort of independent ownership? Um, or, you know, if you're approached by somebody with deep pockets, would you be happy to sell and and have GNS become part of, you know, whichever big behemoth is is out there today making acquisitions? Yeah, great. That's a great question. I'm just going to be really honest with you. I think first off, in terms of passing the torch, I I don't want to say the day I took the job, I started thinking about it, but I I talk openly about succession with our team, and I have for years, um, not to work myself out of a job by any means, um, but I think the process has to start early. It has to be part of almost every major business decision you make, like an acquisition, you need to think about succession. What are you acquiring? Things like that. But I also think, you know, over the course of our careers, we watch succession happen in, in different phases of our career, but also different 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 positions that we've been in and you've seen good succession and you've seen bad. And I think, I think good succession takes time. Right. Um, and I think it has to really, really start early. So, yeah, I'm planning to, I'm, I'm planning for that every day. Number one, number two, I, I, I used to have a mentality years ago that, you know, we're, it, uh, we used to use the word fiercely independent or I think it was even stronger than that, <laughs> but um, we don't say that. How can you say that today in this environment when uh, when you are approached or, or when you see the kind of um, moves that agencies are making that are right for them at that moment? And uh, so I think you never say never, um, but I think you do have to plan, especially in our case, 52 years to plan to pass on internally right. to, to the next uh, in our case it'll be the fourth generation right debbie any thoughts on on that do you do you keep uh do you have sort of a mental rolodex or or even something more formal that says these are the these are the people that i have in my company who one day um are going to be the right people oh i think we've over? definitely got yeah, we've definitely got the right people who'll take over. Um, and uh, I think that it's really important that I move out of the way and let those people take over. I don't want to be, we have a joke and I'm sorry, you just let me know when it's time for me to pop off to the glue factory. Cause you know, I don't want to, I don't want to stay in anyone's way. And equally, I know that no one would want me to leave too soon either. So I think it's, you know, trying to get that balance right so that you you don't you don't stop anyone's ambition or get in the way of their kind of development and progress because of your own 
you know what you want to do but then you know I, there's lots of things that I want to do I'm you know I'm 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 doing a de- I'm doing a master's degree in behavioral science I've got things that I'm really interested in that I can't you know that I'm not exploring in the kind of career I've got right now so I want to have the opportunity to do those things I don't want to run a PR agency for the rest of my life but um I, and but other people want that opportunity too so I think it's important to um you know to to plan and bring everybody with you Right. And of course, that that kind of succession planning mindset is important, whatever you intend to do, right? I mean, I, more and more we hear that even the traditional acquirers, whether that's a holding company or, or a, um, you know, a private equity company or whatever, want to know more about the next generation of management than they maybe did four or five years ago. And so presumably Tobias... Um, you guys are are always thinking about sort of how strong the bench is, how much depth you have, how many people you have who one day could step up and and take on a a broader role. So we also have uh, already a few candidates on the list and, you know, uh, this is is already in progress. Uh, But I I would absolutely agree. So I think it's not an option. I would never say today, you know, definitely, this is the one way to follow. We will definitely have, you know, uh, uh, sell our shares all to employee. You, you have to be, uh, you have, you need to have the options, I think. And you also have to prepare your company to follow it both ways, because otherwise also you're not maximizing the value for your, your for your owners, right? And, and to develop uh, the company in a healthy way, financially, and, you know, also uh, in terms of organization. So I think this is very important and probably also something I see, at least here in Germany, that some agencies in the past decades missed to do, you know, that these were agencies run by individuals. They were not able to uh, build up a strong second generation leadership. And they were also not able to set up a way to, you know, to to either uh, have a, a good external sale to, to, to network or something because they, they were not following this this road. And I think this is oh. really important. And we... we, we Put lot, lot, lots of efforts in this also, yeah. Right. No, I think, I mean, I think we can probably all think of um, agencies in, in our respective markets that were absolute leaders 10, 20, 30 years ago that vanished because... Um, because there wasn't a succession plan because you nobody knew who was going to come, come next. I, I'm interested as we talk about sort of the next generation. I'm not trying to push anybody up and out, obviously. But is there is there a difference between saying, okay, this person is a star employee and saying this person is a future leader owner of the firm? And what do you do for those people who are superstars when it comes to PR, but don't necessarily have the ambition or the the skills or the resources to become an owner going forward and and how do you how do you sort of manage expectations for all of those different kinds of people luke you that that is such a great question and um something we've spent a lot of time on for several months the end of last year into this year led by our newest owners, I might add, who asked me to like, hey, step aside, let us let us take a look at exactly what you're talking about here, Paul, because um, you're right, um, an equity model 
um, that requires personal investment and risk, um, you know, first of all, you can only you can't have an unlimited number of investors, right? So what they focused on is taking the mystique out of that and being open and honest about what investing means, the risks, the rewards, et cetera. We need to do a better job of that, and that's that's in the works now. Um, but they 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 really looked hard instead at the next gen leadership development and and made sure as we've expanded our agency, like I said, all the disciplines, creative, digital, media, uh, the DEI initiatives that that we're putting forth. And it's instead making sure that we develop those leaders and give them a seat at the table on a regular basis, a full seat at the table on important agency discussions um, and direction of the agency. And if we don't do that, and if we just leave this mystique that there's only one path, then how do we expect engagement um, of an ownership mindset of our leaders? And I and so that's really what we're focused on on right now. And I think, and, and that includes, and I'll, I'll be quick, that includes giving a really defined path uh, from what it means to, to, to go from a VP to an SVP. And if you, if you wanted to take the path from an SVP to an owner, an investor, what does that path look like? And our group has just done a great job in the last several months getting that ready. So it, it, it's going to help our discussions with our future leaders. Any thoughts, Debbie? Yeah, I mean we're not as we're not as big as these guys, and uh, and um, I think my next that my next generation coming. I mean, what what I am doing is you know spending a lot of time working out what people want, um, and trying to create an environment where if someone wants to be head of brand or head of something more sustainable, that they are allowed to follow that path and almost write their own job description. And the my job is to continue to grow the agency to allow there to be room for these people to follow their passion. Um, um, as well as be really good at their job or do those different things. So that's kind of my approach. Uh, there's no real kind of uh, scheme in place at the moment. Okay. Tobias, anything to add before my last question? Probably not Not very much. So uh, we do a lot of this, uh, uh, what, what Luke uh, and Debbie described, job descriptions, uh, career path tracks, right? Experts or management tracks. And I, I, I certainly th uh, think there's a difference uh, between a star employee and a potential new owner. And that's apart from uh, also resources, et cetera, that's the mindset. And if you have the passion to do that, and that develops over time, that is why for us, it's important to know person for quite some time working together closely before we would ever approach and and you know talk about at a, a track to, to 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 ownership or partnership in our organization because to uh, the one thing is this common core value set uh, this this is so important we see it every day and the second thing is really to to also allow a person to discover uh, on the on their own journey if they want to follow an entrepreneurial path or, you know, if they want to go become an expert, that's, that's important. It needs time. Right. Okay. So I'm, I'm very cognizant of the fact that we've been talking for a while. Your time is very valuable. Um, so um, I'm going to wrap up with one final question, which, um, which is a little bit inside baseball, I guess, but from a PROI perspective, 
Um, obviously, it's good for your organization if your individual members follow your path, right? I mean, the the cost of you know, your affiliate in, in Sweden or Malaysia deciding that they want to sell to Interpublic is that you then have to go out and find another partner that comes up to the standards that, that you're used to around the world. And so do you have any kind of formal mechanism in place as PROI to share your learnings about succession planning and second generation management so that you can encourage all the other firms around you to follow this track and not um not not sell out to a the competition and and b create more work for you in the long run i mean it's it's a huge part of all we always talk about i think i was on a boat in cairo back in october picking tobias's brains about the exact subject so um so uh, yeah, I think it's we you know we talk about a lot of things, but I think as given that most of us are you know owners, uh, it's a, it's a huge part of what we're all talking about and sharing learnings and still being in touch with the people who do you know who do sell up, move out, do different things. You know, uh, it's a it's a very tight network where we're all kind of continuing to learn from each other. Yeah. You know, Paul, I'll just add to that. I agree with Debbie and and. Uh... I, I take those relationships um, and use them outside of a formal PROI setting. Uh, I'm part of a CEO exchange that includes two other PROI uh, CEOs and others who are not in PROI to talk about these kinds of issues. And just ironically, you know, one of them, you know, did sell, um, but they sold to private equity and, and, um, and became a platform. So there's no reason for them to not be continue to be a PRI partner. Right. So and you learn so much even from from those kinds of exchanges. So uh, and Tobias mentioned that earlier, how how active he is outside of the industry and how important that is. And and then you know, Paul, I've never felt the need to like score points with you, but we you know you've given some really great forums on this. I think the the, the most beneficial part from my standpoint of provoke every year is the, what used to be independent, now the entrepreneurs forum. And to be able to participate in those kinds of discussions there um, with really great advisors like that you put forth um, has been really, really helpful to us too. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. What a fun discussion. Um, congratulations on keeping the independent spirit alive. I still maintain that mid-size independents are driving growth and innovation. Um, they are more nimble than publicly traded companies and, um, and more multi-stakeholder focused. They're better for employees, I think, probably better for clients. Um, I say that quite openly in the boardrooms of much bigger agencies, so I'm not just currying favor. Um, and it's great to, great to get a little bit of sort of inside skinny on, on, on how you've accomplished it and what the priorities are. Thank you so much. Thanks, Paul. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.